arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Having just watched the top five wedding disasters, I don't feel too bad now about having written this wedding scene for Lark Larson and Flo Nightingale. We're opening right at Lark Larson's wedding to Flo Nightingale, outside at the mouth of the Pequonicut River in Hamilton Bay. Led by Bucky Driscoll, Jerry St. Clair comes back to town for the wedding. Not to forget Professor Dumbal, all watched by Dogface Big Boy and Flatfoot from the Fiore organization. The wedding does not go as advertised. Here is episode three, Thias Jones series of the life and times of Charlie Diaper by Robert P. Fitton, starting now. The life and times of Charlie Diaper, chapter 12, part one. Franny adjusted Jones's light blue tie and straightened his tan blazer. Perfect. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Is that all the thanks I get? She laughed. Jones looked across the rows of cars parked in the grassy field leading to the mouth of the Pequonicut River. There are hundreds of people here. People loved Lark. Yeah, especially the other teams, said Jones with a grin. To his right, Billy Bobcat drove a jacked-up white truck with a loud motor that drew the attention of the crowd 50 yards away. He pulled next to Jones's Jeep. Guess who? asked Franny. Where did he get that truck? Billy extricated his large torso from the vehicle. He grabbed a beer from somewhere inside the truck. Reliving your second childhood, Billy? My childhood never ended, Buster, said Billy, popping the can's tab. That, I believe, said Franny. I'll lay five to one that lock chickens out. I'll take that bet, said Jones. Hey, Jones. Hey, what? They began walking along the rows of cars toward the chairs set up dockside. What a party last night at the Quonset Hut. That place is a dump, said Jones. The blue ocean and gazebo were visible now. I guess Locke is pretty hungover. Jones looked at his beer can. What about you? I don't get hungover. Because he never stops, said Franny, her hand alongside of her mouth. I heard that, Francis, and I'll take it as a compliment. Billy crushed the now empty beer can and chucked it in the wood. Jones grabbed his wrist. Come on, Billy, this is a nice place without beer cans all over the hill. They'll never see it. Jones shook his head and wondered why he had been so unlucky to arrive at the wedding at the same time as Billy. You don't seem like you're still mad at Lark, Billy, said Jones. Billy rolled his tongue around his cheek and pulled out another can of beer from his coat pocket. I got plans for that dude. Didn't you have beer last night, asked Jones. Donnie Dewis brought that cheap stuff up from Mexico. I didn't care, because somebody got the Boom Boom Girls up there. Whose party was this anyways, asked Jones. Some of Locke's old college buddy, Arnie Dewis, Wendell Harris, Bucky Driscoll. I'm glad I missed it. You see, Locke and one of the Boom Boom Girls, I don't want to hear it. He held Franny's hand up the hill. Some things about Locke are better left unsaid. Amen, said Franny. Ahead, a few hundred people had gathered around a large wood gazebo connected to the Fisherman Point's dock. Are you going to write all this up, Billy? asked Jones. You know, an article? 
I got plans for that, too. Who's the best man, Franny? asked Jones as they neared the crowd. Rumor has it that Snooky McKenzie is the best man. Jones raised his brows. Snooky McKenzie is in an institution. He's broken out before. Bucky Driscoll, in a black tuxedo, handed out programs at the entrance to a wide swath of half-filled white chairs. Flowers hung in the open spaces of the gazebo as Arnie Dewars pounded nails through the lower support boards on the dock. Why is Arnie working on that gazebo now? asked Jones. Billy laughed and Franny stared at him. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't catch me on that gazebo. Well, you can't be too careful, Francis, said Billy, finishing the beer. He was about to hurl it into the river when Jones clamped his wrist. In the trash barrel, Billy. Huh? What? Who? In the trash. Is he always this way, Francis? asked Billy. Depends on what knucklehead he's dealing with, William. Huh? What? Who? Yeah. Oh, yeah. William. <laughs> Jones turned and squinted as Arnie brought out a socket wrench and began tightening bolts below the gazebo. I heard it through the grapevine, said Billy. The Dewey's trucks were shut down by the state. That just doesn't happen, Coach. Somebody made a call. You don't say, said Jones, smiling at Franny. I do say. Goodbye, Billy. Uh, enjoy yourself, said Jones. Yeah, Billy. Heidi ho Wait, I need to talk to you about the logbook scandal. Later, said Jones, as Franny took his arm and they headed for the chairs. Then Jones stopped as Billy veered toward Bucky Driscoll, his hair slicked back and handing out wedding programs. Wedding programs, sir? Lockwass and versus Flo Nightingale, the Reverend Achu Refereeing. <laughs> said Bucky, laughing at his own joke. <laughs> You're Driscoll, said Billy. Bucky Driscoll, reporting for duty, said Bucky, saluting. You know, Driscoll, I don't think I've ever heard of some a-hole harassing a pitcher, pitching a no-hitter. Who, me? No, Mother Goose, yelled Billy. No wonder you got fired. Ah, it's just an ugly rumor. PJ has no authority, said Bucky, looking at Jones and Franny. Right, Matthias? Bucky, I have nothing to say. Oh, cat got your tongue, Matthias? Idiot, said Billy as he moved toward the seats. Jones nodded at the Dean of Students, the silver-haired Nigel Kent. He acknowledged the other professors as he and Franny headed toward Mac and his wife Millie from the seats to the left. But Billy bullied his way into the row, kicking Millie in the shins as he passed. Hey, watch where you're going, Billy. Then Mac turned to Jones. So Driscoll finally got fired. Jones glanced back at Bucky. What comes around goes around, only it took a long time. The silver-haired Cora Jefferson, holding an oversized black pocketbook, walked with her gangly son Courtney down the aisle. Hey, what do you think, Matthias? Asked Cora in her shrill voice. That cheapskate Larson actually is going down the aisle. Better her than me with that nincompoop. Mother, said Courtney, you always see the worst in people. Yeah, he has looking at you, kid. Hey, I heard Larson was swinging from some pole at that orgy last night. Jones looked at Franny and smiled. I wasn't there. Yeah, well, my dumbass son was supposed to go there, but he got lost up in the woods. The road wasn't marked, Mother, said Courtney, pulling her down the aisle. Yeah, sounds like the broken record called your father. 
He didn't know his ass from his elbow either. Jones caught sight of the gawky Arnie Doers prancing down the aisle with a socket wrench in his hand. Hey Arnie, why are you working on that gazebo now? Oh, just a few kinks. Jones thrust his index finger into Arnie's shoulder. If that gazebo breaks loose, it'll end up in Hamilton Bay. Yeah, and the pigs could fly, <laughs> said Arnie, waving his hand. Arnie continued down the aisle, taking long strides. This should be very interesting, said Jones. Franny sniffed the air. Cigarette smoke. We are outside, Franny, said Jones. Only a moron would smoke cigarettes in this day and age, said Cora oh, Jefferson oh, from oh, two oh, aisles oh, back. Oh, Jones oh, felt oh. someone whack his shoulder. In the silhouetted light, the former owner of the Hamilton Enterprise, Jerry St. Clair, cigarette plunked in the corner of his mouth, hovered over Jones. He wore a wide brim hat and had a wrinkled blue suit. Cora Jefferson, the hardware lady, a nutcase with a screw loose. Jerry turned to Jones. What's the matter, Jones? You're hiding out from me. Hiding out? asked Jones. I thought you were dead. They all do. Gotta keep them on their toes. I got the exclusive on the Larson Nightingale wedding. Glossies and a color spread, $9.99, no tax. That's nice, Jerry. Good to see you. Jerry looked over Jones towards Billy. Ah, Billy Bobcat, ace sports racker. The guy who left town without paying his debts. Max slinked down in his seat and covered his face with the wedding program. Billy sprang to his feet. Hey, Jerry, why don't you take a flight? Hold it, Billy, said Jones. Jerry, go work on your exclusive. Sure, and let him not pay his debts. You owe me $352.16, you welcher. I don't care how old you are, St. Clair. I'll knock your ass. They've tried, buddy. They've tried. A man holding a large camera with a flashbulb attachment stepped up to Jerry. I'm ready for action, Jerry. You got your flashbulbs, Gordo? Check. Odochrome film? Check. Okay. Get going. I want candids, Gordo. Candids. Jones whispered to Franny. Who uses flashbulbs? And film? <laughs> Laughed Franny. I overheard that, Jones. Flashbulbs give consistency. They're tried and true. I'll keep my eye on you, Jones, and your little chickadee. Jerry dotted to the right and down the next aisle. Who invited him? asked Franny. Jones smiled. No one. Wendell Harris, in his blue police uniform and hat, rushed down the aisle toward Jones. Matthias, Flo is all dressed and back at the boathouse. Wendell, why are you telling me this? asked Jones. The problem, Matthias, is nobody can find Lark. Where's George? On his way back from Prince William. He said to start without him. I'm sure George couldn't care less whether he's here or not, said Jones. What did you guys do to Lark last night? Oh, Lark was looped. I dropped him off at his house after midnight. Haven't been able to find him all morning. Lark never could hold his liquor, said Mac to the right of Billy. Wendell, said Franny, he's getting married in 15 minutes. Oh, not what he told Umba the human umbrella last night, said Wendell. Jones tilted his head. The human... Try his cell. It shut off. Mobile cell said something about him not paying his bill. Jones stood in the aisle. Well, where's Reverend Chu? In the john, said Wendell, for the past half hour. Only Lark could screw up his own wedding, said Jones. To his right on the hill, three men in suits stood solid in front of the crowd. 
Oh, great. Just what we need. More Fiori nonsense. Oh, Coach Jones! Professor Dumbal here! Jones spun around. Dumbal, a very short man in an oversized suit, stood on his chair several seats back. Later, Professor, called Jones, worried that Lark had backed out of the wedding. I have the information you requested! Dumbal leaped into the aisle and scurried along the rows. He handed Jones a red folder. This should solve your case. Well, thanks for the info, Professor. Thank you, said Jones as he moved up behind Wendell. Dumbal yelled out, Be careful when you follow the masses. Sometimes the M is silent. <laughs> so you told me. Jones met Wendell near the gazebo. Okay, Wendell, where can he be? Hey, I heard Locke bolted town. Get lost, Bucky, said Jones, leading Wendell to the left. Well, Locke had a really bad hangover, said Wendell. He was belligerent. Put that on his tombstone. Hey, I've got some hangover pills for that. It works every time, said Bucky. I told you to get lost, Bucky. Wendell, first let's pull the Reverend out of the bathroom. Oh, I wouldn't do that, Matthias, said Wendell. That restroom is a hazmat zone. Jones's phone rang. Jones. Matthias, this is George. George, we're at Fisherman's Point and Lark is A-W-O-L. I have Lark in the cruiser. What happened? I was driving back from Prince William up 32 when Lark and his brown bomber comes flying over the crest at close to 90 miles an hour. Why? I'll get to that. Tell everyone Lark will be there in 15 minutes. Use the cover of a police escort in honor of his marriage. What's the real story, George? Lark lost control of his car for at least 10 seconds, back and forth across the highway. He nicked my cruiser. I pulled him over by the cemetery in Prince William. He was a little confused. A little? That's par for the course. Does he still want to marry Flo? He says he does. Oh, boy. I'll tell Reverend Chu if I can get him out of the joint. What? We'll be waiting, George. Jones turned back, only to be blocked by dog-faced big boy and Flatfoot. Nice day for a wedding. Nice to see you, Jones, said the fat-faced big boy. Why are you here? Waiting for Coco Stefani. Where is he? You tell me. Dogface slowly removed a snub-nosed revolver. Jones, I'd enjoy killing you. Jones stepped up to him. You tell Fiori I know nothing. No, we'll hang around here in case Stefani shows. You do that, said Jones, as the little Reverend Chu, hunched over, staggered out of the boathouse restroom with Wendell. Don't do anything stupid, Jones, said Dogface. Right. Reverend, the diminutive Chu, looked to his right at Jones. He nodded his head. Lark is getting a police escort. He'll be here in 15 minutes. Very good, very good. Sorry, I was indisposed. Mr. Driscoll said these pills would help my headache, but... My bowels are in turmoil. I'm sorry to hear that, Reverend. Can you perform the ceremony? One more trip to the restroom. The dark-haired Chew put his hand on Jones' shoulder. If you would be so kind to announce to this gathering the arrival of Coach Larson, I'll be right out. The Reverend bowed his head and moved to the other end of the boathouse where Flo was waiting. Jones shook his head. Then he strode up to the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Coach Matthias Jones. I just spoke with Reverend Chu. It's my pleasure to announce that Coach Larson is being brought in a police escort by Chief Strickland. 
He will arrive in his usual fanfare in a few minutes. Amidst the applause, Jones sauntered down the aisle and sat next to Franny. What's that all about? asked Franny. I'll tell you later, Fran. Were those the Boston boys? Yup. Boys are acting real tough and looking for Coco. Figures. Franny held up the red folder. The professor found some interesting things. Drugs? Yes, sir. Dumbao found studies showing how the medication side effects can masquerade as dementia. Even anti-anxiety drugs can do this. Charlie, wherever he is, may just have dementia, Franny. Short-term memory loss, disinhibition, hallucinations. You're kidding, said Jones. Let me see that. They call it pseudo-dementia, said Franny, as Jones thumbed through the folder. There's a ton of drugs that could mimic dementia. Jones thought for a few seconds. It would be a conspiracy of sorts. Fury would have to pay off the staff. That would be ridiculous. Depends on the money, coach, said Franny, pointing her index fingers at him. Exactly. A siren grew louder down Shore Road from town. The blue spinning and flashing lights of Strickland's SUV cruiser appeared near Sal's fast food on the beach. How do you prove a Fiori conspiracy? asked Franny. Jones shook his head. We don't even know where Coco is. The cruiser's siren was louder as everyone turned toward the main road. Franny elbowed Jones aside. Here comes trouble. Lark could be in Timbuktu if it wasn't for George. Reverend Chu walked bow-legged from the boathouse restroom toward the gazebo. What's Strickland doing with this escort? asked Billy. Police escort for Lark, said Jones. The only escort he needs is for his own funeral, said Billy, sipping from a beer can. There's more to the story. The assemblage stood and began applauding as Lark wandered aimlessly out of the cruiser. He wore a long-tailed blue suit coat and matching pants. The crowd cheered when Lark waved. Strickland shook his head. Amazing. To the left, the thin, tubular, dark-haired Flo Nightingale in a white lace dress emerged from the boathouse with a similar-looking woman. Lark, still waving, froze around 20 feet from Flo. Oh, I hope he's not going catatonic again, said Jones. Then Lark moved forward and yelled, Oh, Snookums! Lark reached out and took her hands. Reverend Chu already stood at the makeshift altar inside the gazebo. From the front row, the Skino's Snooky McKenzie in a light blue tuxedo walked toward the gazebo. That's him! Snooky McKenzie, said Jones. Lark and Flo bounced into the gazebo, and the structure seemed to move up and down in the water. With a loud Tarzan yell, Snooky took the running leap of a broad jumper and tumbled violently into the gazebo. A loud crack from below the dock echoed throughout the crowd. Then Snooky flipped onto his feet on the artificial turret. Damn, it didn't snap, said Billy. What'd you mean by that, Billy? asked Jones. Well done, Snooky, said Lark. You were always one in a million. Gather round, you lovebirds said Chu as Lark and Flo locked their arms together, but the gazebo continued to bob up and down in the water. We are here today to unite this man and this woman in, in, in. Chu held his stomach and made a sour face. God in his wisdom will unite these two in matrimony. I think God has his fingers crossed, said Jones. Amen, amen, added Billy. 
Jones watched Fiore's men on the hill as the Reverend asked Snooky to produce the rings. I have to meet the elusive Snooky, said Jones. You'll regret it, said Billy. That dude was never the same after he climbed that telephone pole and got zapped during a football game. Snooky leaped upward as if he were performing a martial arts move, but he came down hard on the artificial turf and something cracked below the gazebo. That man is a genius, said Arnie. Genius? asked Jones. He just loosened your bolt, Arnie. Ah, that's impossible. You worry too much. Hold hands, you lovebirds, repeated Reverend Chu. Dearly beloved, we have come together in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. I think God is holding his breath now. Oh, Flo, Flo, will you have this man to be your husband to live together with him in the covenant of marriage? We love and comfort him and honor him and keep him in sickness and health and forsaking all Let us be faithful unto him as long as you both live. Oh, yes, she said, making a cutesy face to Lark. Lark, we've had this woman to be your wife and to live together in the covenant of marriage. We love and comfort her and to keep her in sickness and health and forsaking all Let us be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. After a long silence, Chu leaned forward. Well... Well, I'm thinking about it. Lark Larson, you are a cad. Snooky's martial arts stunt and the stomping had loosened the lower supports, and the gazebo broke away from the dark. Inside the gazebo, Lark and Flo, Chew and Snooky were now floating into the Paquanicut River. Looks like the lovebirds are going on a cruise, added Billy. Perfecto. I don't believe it, said Jones. But the unseaworthy gazebo began to sink slowly in the water. I thought you said you'd waterproof that gazebo, Arnie. If you had built it properly, it wouldn't have broken loose. Sabotage! Jones stepped forward as Jerry St. Clair and his photographer, Gordo, cut him off. Use all the film you have, Gordo. We'll ship this baby to Prince William Gazette for a page one exclusive. Out of the way, Jerry. Watch it, Jones. You're asking for a lawsuit. The rising water now covered the artificial turf as the panicking flow held onto the outside rail. We're doomed! We're doomed! Yes or no? Yes or no? Do you want to marry this woman? Jones, on the edge of the dock, cupped his hands. Hey, Lark! You want Flo to pay for the wedding? Lark turned toward Jones and shouted, Yes! Chu quickly placed the rings on both Lark and Flo's fingers as the water passed Lark's belt. And Flo and Lark, having witnessed your vows of love to one another, it is my joy to present to you all gathered here as husband and wife. Lark, you may kiss the bride. Lark kissed her, and the water covered all the participants. Spike removed his sport coat and shirt. Then he leaped off the docks. He splashed in the river and started to swim toward Lark, Flo, and Chu, treading water. Strickland rushed over from his cruiser. Jones tightened his brow. Spike, within a few feet, pulled Chu, Flo, and Lark back to the dock. Well, where's Wendell? asked Strickland as he looked around. In the restroom. Why is everyone heading to the restroom? Strickland looked back to the road through the binoculars. I don't see Snooky McKenzie. That's his calling card. Jerry St. Clair thrust a microphone in Jones's face. Give us the rundown, Coach Matthias Jones of Hamilton College. Beat it, Jerry yelled Jones as Spike towed the group closer to the dock. Freedom of the press. Jones unplugged the microphone from the recorder and casually kicked the recorder in the river. Jerry, with no recorder, kept babbling. So we have confirmed that Donald Spike Messerschmidt 
is making a valiant attempt to save the newlyweds. Jerry, get lost. How do you know they're married, Jones? Because Locke said yes. Jones grinned when he saw the microphone cord connected to nothing on the dock. Spike is a machine, said Arnie as he approached the docks again and held his temple. Arnie, haven't you caused enough trouble? asked Jones. I don't feel so hot. Arnie opened two unwrapped pills. Wait, what is that, Arnie? I got a little hangover from last night. It was wild with the Boom Boom Girls. You should have been there, Matthias. He was home, said Franny. Oh, hi, Franny Wanny. Jones grabbed the plastic wrappers. This isn't for headaches or hangovers, Arnie. This is a laxative. Huh? Jones read the writing on the plastic. Score a half tablet every 12 hours. Do not exceed two tablets a day. Blowout. This tablet is called Blowout for the digestive system. Where did you get this, Arnie? Uh-oh, said a voice in the crowd. I'd rather not say. Bucky. Bucky waddled near the hill toward Fiore's men. Jones and Strickland approached the edge of the dock and helped as Spike lifted Flo and then Lark onto the deck boards. Then he tossed the nimble chew onto the dock. Is everyone all right? asked Strickland. We're a-okay. Spike saved us with duct tape, said Lark, sitting up. Somehow he still wore his silver-rimmed glasses. I am fine, said Chu. Lark patted Flo's nose with his soggy handkerchief. Franny and two of the church ladies and Flo's sister ran up to the dock with blankets. When you get married, Flo, it's time for the honeymoon. Boom, boom. Yes, Lark, said Jones. If I were you, I'd keep my boom boom to myself. Locke made a squirmy face. You're right, old boy. Where is my fee, Locke? Asked Chu. Stop right there, Reverend. I lost my wallet at sea. Watch it, Chu, yelled Cora Jefferson. He's a cheapskate. Jones reached into his wallet and pulled out a hundred-dollar bill. Here, Reverend, Locke can pay me back. I am most gracious, Coach Jones. A hundred is a little steep, said Locke, now on his feet. He helped Flo stand. Then Franny draped one of the blankets over Lark's head. Thank you, Franny, said Jones, smiling. Jones looked out to the river. Wait a minute. Where's Snooky? Oh, he's swimming to Maine, said Lark in a matter-of-fact manner as he removed the blanket. Well, that's insane, said Strickland. The currents away from the river will bring him out to sea, said Spike. The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper Chapter 12 Part 2 Strickland was already on his cell, talking to the captain at Hanson's Marina. Another fiasco survived, said Franny, as Jones hugged her with one arm. I want to know if Billy messed with those bolts, said Strickland. It's a toss-up, George. Arnie? Billy? Wendell, where are you? said Strickland into his shoulder radio. Wendell! After a long silence, a toilet flushed on the radio. And why is everyone using the restroom? asked Strickland. One catastrophe at a time, answered Jones. Matthias, come with me. Let's head north along the coast to the Scusset Lighthouse. Jones kissed Franny. Heidi ho, Franny. Jones panned the coast north of Hamilton with Strickland's binoculars as the chief waited for the Coast Guard and Prince William to come back on the phone. No, Franny, we've seen nothing. Snooky may have met his Waterloo. Why hasn't Wendell called? 
asked Strickland. Wendell's using the restroom, said Franny on Jones's phone. Restroom, George. Again? Jones shook his head when he thought about Bucky handing out the blowout tablets instead of pain reliever. Yes, Captain. Why can't the Coast Guard send out a damn boat? asked Strickland. Snooky McKenzie is a legend in Hamilton. I'm going up to the Scusset Lighthouse, Franny. I'll get back to you. That's where the current swings north toward Nova Scotia, said Strickland. The whole town will be on my case if we don't find Snooky. Strickland and Jones hurried down a narrow trail from the Overlook Rocks. George, Snooky may be a, this athletic legend, but he can't last out there in the cold water. Hypothermia, added Strickland. Why haven't we seen him? We've gone parallel to the coast. They hiked up the car trail along the rocks and toured the lighthouse. The weird thing is they're actually married, George. Strickland stopped for a second. Ah, see how long that lasts. They reached the top of the basalt ledge that extended a mile south out to sea. In the far distance, Prince William's tall buildings were visible along with the Crosstown Bridge. Jones followed the shore down toward Hamilton. Fisherman's Point, north of town, was still crowded with people. Captain's marina boat had just passed the Quantucket River. A few fishing boats were visible out to sea, and an orange oil tanker to the south. This is ridiculous. There's no way that Snooky could have reached the rocks up here. Unless he's gone, said Jones, opening the door to the old lighthouse. Both men scurried up the lighthouse's winding metal stairs. Once up top, Jones again checked down to Fisherman's Point. Nothing. Time to face reality. In this town? Asked Jones as his phone rang. He gripped it quickly. Matthias Jones. Coach, this is P.J. Fletcher. P.J. I'm presently at Fisherman's Point. I was alerted by Nigel Kent of the Larson debacle and the subsequent disappearance of Mr. McKenzie. Nigel says that McKenzie is a legend. You could say that, P.J. You disagree? Let's just say with the town he's a legend. Oh, like Lark. Correct. I think that sums it up, P.J. Good. That's why I've ordered a chopper from the Prince William Airport. Really? I've also made a few calls for the Coast Guard to get their asses in gear. Where are you now? At the Scusset Lighthouse north of Hamilton. Stay put. I'll have the chopper up there in minutes. You're welcome to help search the area with me. Jones looked out the window. There's plenty of room up the top of the rock to land that chopper. If I were in Chicago, I've had my own helicopter up here. This is the best option right now. I'm not overly optimistic after 45 minutes. Nor am I, PJ. I'll be here. Later, Coach. Jones, headphones placed over his ears, looked out the window as the chopper rose above the lighthouse. Strickland's uniform furrowed below as the helicopter veered out to sea. You live up here, Jones, said PJ through the microphone. The headphones were tight on his bald head. Where do you want the pilot to go? Hug the coast first. We've already scoured the bay. I worry about the outer currents. You heard him. Take it slow, ordered PJ. Then he looked over to Jones. I heard Dewitz built that gazebo that started this calamity. You heard correct, but it may have been sabotaged. I'm beginning to wonder if any Dewitz can tie his own shoes. Wonder no more, said Jones, and PJ smiled. As the chopper moved down the coast, Jones studied the sandy shore bordering the woods. 
inlets to the swamp formed a venous network near the Pequonicut River. Jones had the pilot circle the swamplands several times. He looked over at PJ and shrugged his shoulders. Then they moved offshore. Now let's be reasonable, said PJ, as the rotors vibrated overhead. This does not look good for Mackenzie. You don't understand, PJ. This man has nine lives, said Jones. Looks like he won't be able to reach double digits, replied PJ. Back at the empty chairs at Fisherman's Point, afternoon shadows had already started to fall across the river, but the sea remained bright blue. Thanks, Matthias, said Strickland. The situation is not good for Snooky. Snooky's luckier than he deserves to be, if you know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean, said Strickland. I'm going to check in with Wendell. Okay, George. We have to look at this logically, said PJ, handing a coffee to Jones. The Coast Guard will have men go north on land from the point. Snooky is like Lark. My cousin kept Lark around because everybody loves him. That about sums that up. By the way, I tried calling Coco Stefani's cell phone, but the carrier is telling me that the number is no longer in service. Jones looked at him for a few seconds. Coco is involved in a court case that's about to get larger. And there are members of a crime family that want to make sure he keeps quiet. I see. That would be the Fiore family, correct? Asked PJ. Fiore had men up here today. Are you kidding me? Asked PJ. Why? He's looking for Coco, but Coco's in hiding. You and Coco are like brothers. You might say that, but I don't know where he's gone. Just as well, said PJ. My guess is that Fury believes you know where Coco went. You need security. You have security? With my holdings, it's essential. I'll fly Norm Bowen up here. Fury came up on many of my telephone and personal chats with Hamilton over the years. As I said, I know of Coco's connection to the college. Coco's connection to donations is vital said PJ. What's the court case? It's called the logbook scandals. Fury was manipulating the video results of races and sporting contests, working with two guys from Channel Z in Las Vegas. Interesting. And Coco was a witness to this and has subsequently disappeared. Right on the button, PJ. You and Coco were both involved in some humdingers, according to Hamilton. PJ made a sour face. This coffee is disgusting. I'll have to bring you to one of the Big Mama's donut shops. PJ produced a charming smile. Big Mama's, are they franchised? Some are. None in Hamilton. Might be a moneymaker. PJ deposited the cup in the trash barrel. Tell me more about this logbook case. Coco was taken under the wing of Charlie DePiro, a.k.a. Charlie Danger, now a.k.a. Charlie Diaper. Charlie, it said, is demented in some nursing home. Fiore took over his operation maybe seven years ago. Suspicious. It may be tied to the logbook scandal. Do you know this? Speculation right now, said Jones. Not only that, but I just found out today from one of the professors at the school that it's possible to make someone appear demented by the use of conventional pharmaceuticals. So you think Fiore is drugging him, said PJ. Maybe. But more than that, I think Fiore's going to frame Charlie and Charlie won't be able to defend himself. If that were true, why not just kill him a long time ago? That's what I'm trying to figure out. After the game, I'll investigate this further during vacation. Matthias, it might be worth my staying in Hamilton just to follow what you get involved in. You want some good coffee and maybe something sweet? 
I'm married, cracked PJ, and Jones laughed. PJ, said Jones, still chuckling, I can have you at Big Mama's on Route 5 in 15 minutes, and I'll fill you in with the details about the logbook case. Hop in the car, said PJ. Hamilton was right about you. What do you mean? asked Jones. Follow Matthias and you'll find the bodies. The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper, Chapter 13 Johnson Field, Morgan State College, Bedford, Connecticut, April 17th. An outer cinder track surrounded the ball field. Pale green leaves were just budding on the rows of trees beyond the outside fence. Maybe when the clouds cleared, the leaves would fully blossom with the sunlight. Hamilton was ahead of Morgan State since Corky Turnberry's home run in the top of the first inning. With a 5-0 lead in the ninth, Jones got nervous when Morgan scored three runs with only one out. He returned to the mound and brought in long-arm Ricky Sullivan with almost a full week's rest. Close it out, Rick, said Jones, looking down the line baseline. Outside the small stadium, overlooking the distant hills, Billy Bobcat's white truck roared down the road to the field. Jones winced all the way back to the bench. Mud splatter looked sprayed on the truck's white paint. Hey, coach, said Woozy. Here it comes. I see him, Woozy. Why is he here? asked Woozy as Ricky warmed up. He claims he's writing an article. Jones clapped his hands. Come on, Ricky. Ricky threw a quick breaking curveball, and the Morgan first baseman grounded to short. The ensuing double play ended the game. Jones headed out to the mound and shook Ricky's hand. As they lined up for high fives, Jones spotted Billy, beer can in hand, leaning against the aluminum bleachers. Jones forgot about Billy and proceeded to a team meeting in right field and methodically went over his impressions of the game. He informed the team that they would have downtime until Tuesday practice at Larson Field, and he congratulated them for remaining undefeated. Then he told them he would be traveling to Avondale to ask a few questions about the bomb explosion outside Larson Stadium. I have that rental car waiting, Woozy, he said back at the bench as the team boarded the special white bus for the trip back to New Hampshire. I think Billy has other plans, said Woozy, adjusting his crimson cap. He's starting to get on my nerves. Florida plates on that truck. He drove up from Florida. Hey, coach, I have new information, said Billy as he wandered over. His half-shaven face bothered Jones. Jones debated whether to respond at all. You're losing your touch, coach. Jones dipped his head as he marched like a bull toward Billy. Look, Billy, I don't know what you're trying to prove. I have information. Sure you do. Listen, just stay out of my way. Don't you ever shave? Sometimes. Jones turned but quickly spun around. What information? I have a meeting set up with Marjorie Reed, Miller's friend, owner of the Mustang. Jones stared at Billy, gulping his beer. Then he burped and his garbage breath filled the air. So what are you saying? We work together. I want the story, and I need to redeem myself. I'll find Marjorie all by my lonesome, thank you very much, said Jones, not trusting Billy. He returned to the bench to get his overnight bag. Not smart, said Billy, having followed him over to the bench. Why don't you just go back to Florida, Billy? Suit yourself.
But I think, and call it old reporter's instinct, that Charlie Diaper and the bomb are related. What proof do you have? Are we working together or not? Asked Billy. Coach, you have nothing to lose. Wait, said Jones as he thought of the letter in his mailbox. You opened that letter in my mailbox, you slimeball. Jerry said only a fool wouldn't look in the mailbox. Takes one to know one. And why would you or Jerry St. Clair be involved in this at all? The story, Jones. The story. And another thing, Billy. Franny says they still haven't found Snooky McKenzie. I know you fiddle with those bolts because Arnie had to keep tightening them up. Dewis is an idiot. Well, maybe so, but he didn't loosen those bolts. You're dreaming, coach. Billy loosely held the wheel as they zoomed down the interstate and through western Connecticut. How much further to Avondale? The last sign said 15 miles, replied Jones. This woman, Marjorie, sounded depressed and only wanted to talk to me in person. So there. Sure she did. She teaches English at the high school. Car headlights and taillights lit the darkening road as night descended upon the highway. She did say that Miller said he wanted the car for a few days. That still doesn't address why he drove up to Hamilton. Well, I don't know. Ask her. Jones rubbed his cold hands. Now I realize why Coco thought you were such a creep. Comes with the territory, Jones. Billy swerved for no reason, throwing Jones against the passenger side door. Did you see that? I saw nothing, only the lines on the highway. You're drunk. That'll be the day, <laughs> said Billy, tooting the horn. And Charlie DePiro is down here in some rest home. Your information, I already checked that, Billy. There are three nursing homes and an assisted living place in the area. No Charlie DePiro. Unless they have him under a phony name, Buster. Yeah, phony name plus drugs causing dementia. The whole thing's becoming a stretch, said Jones as the drizzle hit the windshield. But I have nothing else to go on. For shits and giggles, let's say it's true. Why wouldn't Miller go all the way up to your backyard, huh? Huh? Yeah, that is the question, Billy. And killed by someone with New York plates who was obviously following him. New York's not too far away from where we are, replied Jones, who was rapidly getting a headache. Oh, can you read a map? <laughs> Asked Billy with a scratchy laugh. Anyone ever tell you you're annoying? An annoying son of a bitch is what they usually say, said Billy with a faint burp. I believe it. Jones nodded and exhaled. See, if Charlie is in Avondale, given the logbook scandal, they'd just kill him in case he remembered something, so that makes no sense. Oh, is that more of your side road crap? Asked Billy as he signaled off the ramp to Avondale. Then he threw the can out the window. Don't push me, Billy, said Jones as the can tumbled down the shoulder asphalt. Yeah, right. Jones nodded as they came to a series of older houses at the end of the ramp. Billy's GPS with a German accent instructed him to turn right. Jones stared at the GPS and squinted. The family restaurant was two miles down Highway 41. He closed his eyes as the truck wipers kicked in, squeaking across the glass. Growing up, he remembered how his father would close his eyes in Aunt May's kitchen during a case. He said it allowed the distractions to go away. 
Bill Jones probably would have popped Billy by now. Not probably. Bill Jones would have popped Billy by now. The most common denominator in Avondale in the logbook scandal was Charlie DePero. Yet if Charlie were here or somewhere else, having a drug prescription to produce dementia would require cooperating people. Jones opened his eyes as the glass blurred until the wiper swept across the windshield. Billy signaled left and entered a packed parking lot. The long brick family restaurant was set back from the road. Jones checked his cell messages. Well, at least the restaurant will be heated. A message from Franny told him to stay safe. Both men moved quickly through the drizzle into the restaurant. Billy opened the aluminum door and kicked the base with his foot so Jones could grab the door. Jones wiped the water droplets off his warm-up jacket. The huge restaurant's noise and rows of table conversation, as well as spending time with Billy, overwhelmed his frayed nerves. Jones faced the rotund hostess in the pink dress. He mentioned Marjorie's name and the hostess smiled. Billy cut in front of him and she led Billy ahead of Jones to a semicircular booth in the corner. A young heavyset woman with glasses and a mat of scattered auburn hair looked up from the book she was reading. Thank you, said Jones to the waitress. Billy had already extended his hand. Marjorie? Her eyes were red and her face solemn. She spoke slowly. Yes, Marjorie Reed. Billy Bobcat, I drove down from New Hampshire. Oh, Mr. Bobcat, thank God. Jones rolled his eyes because Bobcat was not his real name. I'm truly sorry, Marjorie, said the bristly Billy. Excuse me, Miss Reed, I'm Coach Matthias Jones. I believe Jonathan was in New Hampshire to see me. The explosion occurred directly behind a baseball game I was coaching. Did he mention why he was going to New Hampshire? Her eyes teared up. He... He just wanted to use the car. I live near the high school where I work, so that was no problem. What was John involved in? The police have no idea. Marjorie, my sense is that John drove to New Hampshire because he had information, said Jones. Marjorie sipped her orange spiced tea. I've known John since second grade. He was a loyal friend. Did John have a girlfriend? Asked Billy abruptly. Somehow, he now had a beer mug in his hand. John and Migsy were close. Migsy works at General Computer. She's pretty upset. Jones stepped in front of Billy. But John is the one who asked you about the car, correct? Asked Jones. Yes, he has an old clunker. I can see now that he needed a decent car to drive to New Hampshire. You knew John through Migsy, said Jones. Yes, coach. Was anyone hanging around your car before he headed north? asked Jones. She shook her head slowly as she thought. John picked up the car early, seven o'clock, and said he would fill the gas tank. I guess they have him on video, according to Chief Bisbee. They do. Marjorie's brow tightened. I can arrange for Migsy to meet you. Thank you, said Jones. What's uh, Migsy's full name, honey? asked Billy. Marjorie's face soured. Then she folded her hands. Annie Miggs. John knew something. You know how you can tell that about somebody? I asked Miggsy and she thought the same thing. 
He didn't elaborate, asked Jones. No. Where did he work? John worked at Pagani Construction. I don't know how he'd get involved with something so bad that they'd kill him. He was such a good kid. Jones had just climbed inside Billy's messy truck when he saw a black Cadillac's SUV headlights flip on across the lot. The New York plates brought him back to Strickland's description of the possible bomb detonator's Toyota involved in killing Miller. Hold it, Billy. What, the caddy? Maybe I should just ram the SOB. Just wait and see what he does, okay? Oh, I know what you're thinking, said Billy. Fury's in town. Wrong. He popped open a can of beer. You think you're so smart. Fiori with New York plates? Come on, Billy. Huh? What? Who? The black SUV, said Jones. The wipers again dragged across the windshield. Jones looked over his shoulder as the SUV pulled out of the restaurant parking lot. There he is, at the top of the ramp. He's heading east. We've got him now, Billy exclaimed, crunching his hand. The astonished Jones looked at Billy. You're right, he is driving eastbound. I'll run that bastard right off the road. How about we go back into town and check into the motel? Park out back. I like to get up early, real early, said Billy with the can at his lips. I got news for you, pal. We're not sleeping together in the same room. Why, do you snore? Just forget it, Billy. Head down the main road to the country inn. Expensive. Then go somewhere else. As Jones spoke, a bullet pierced the rear window and Jones dove to the center of the bench seat. What's the matter, you chicken? Jones held the dashboard as Billy spun the truck in a 180-degree turn. Billy screeched the tires and headed toward a red, white, and blue 18-wheeler parked on the side of the road. More men with rifles aimed at Billy's truck. You're driving into gunfire, you moron! They'll never fire at us coming at them! Jones ducked again as several bullets hit the windshield and then the hood. Nice going, Billy! Jones looked east. Now I wish I had my weapon! The reckless Billy zoomed past the big truck. More shots filled the air. I'm not a gun nut! Neither am I, but I like to defend myself. The Country Inn, 7979 Route 41, Avondale, Connecticut, 3.13 a.m. Jones opened his eyes in total darkness. Two hours had passed since his last call to Franny. He was not sure he had convinced her that the local police were watching the motel and were tracking the Cadillac SUV. Jones was not convinced either. As the motel room heater buzzed, something again hit the wall in the adjoining room. He checked his watch and shook his head. It was now 3.13 a.m. He leaped from the bed and stepped into his jeans. Then he unchained the door and marched directly to the adjacent door and pounded. The TV blasted inside the room as somebody grumbled and the chain clicked against the door. What do you want, Jones? Asked Billy, standing in a white undershirt and plaid boxers. He held a red-labeled beer against his rounded stomach. Well, what do you get to say for yourself? I left you on the sixth floor when we got back from the police station. You heard what the cops said. We need to stick together. Beer cans were crumpled and scattered across the rug. Now it makes sense. We're supposed to meet the chief, Bisbee, at 6 a.m. And I haven't slept because you've been tossing your empties against the wall. 
I don't need no sleep. Is that right? Well, I do. And you wouldn't even be here if you hadn't been pilfering my mailbox. What else did you take? Nothing at this time. What do you mean at this time? Asked Jones, tightening his fist. Listen, Jones, we've made big progress. I don't consider being shot at to be making progress, said Jones, filling the doorframe. See if you can be quiet for another hour and a half. Yeah, right. Jones turned and stepped into the hall. Hey, Jones! What do you want now, Billy? Asked Jones without turning. Somebody from New York was keeping tabs on Reed. Jones faced him. Well, that's a real news bulletin. Which means they were watching Migsy, too said Billy, now munching on chips with beer. Nice diet, Billy. We all can't be star athletes, Buster. Just write about them, right? Asked Jones. After we talk to Bisbee, I say we just pack away from Miggs's work. Go talk to her inside. Shake her down. I'm not shaking anybody down. She just lost Miller. Go to sleep. Perfecto. Remember, Billy, this isn't a sports interview, said Jones from the hallway. It's a murder investigation, and if Charlie DePiro is down here, it could be more than that. I'm going to visit all three of those nursing homes. Oh, the Hail Mary pass, huh, Coach? Good luck. No, Billy, going down the checklist and eliminating what isn't true. What about Miller's parents? I talked to George Strickland before I left. Miller's parents are in Prince William until Clayton Morris releases the body. Strickland and Don Pacheco will interview the parents. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to have another beer. Oh, what a surprise. The Life and Times of Charlie Diaper. Chapter 14. 7979, Route 41, Avondale, Connecticut. 7.30 a.m. Jones unplugged his wall charger as the television news played in the background. He had talked with Franny several times last night and again speed-dialed her phone. Franny! Have you heard anything, Matthias? Nothing. Billy kept calling Bisbee and they canceled the 6 a.m. meeting. Come on. Tell Billy he's on his own and he can go back to Florida. Yeah, like he'll do that. Strickland called. Jones watched the weather forecast on the map graphics for Western Connecticut and New York. Looks like it's clearing. Finally. Did you say George called? He knows what happened last night with the gunfire. It says you should come home. He tried calling you. Oh, the phone was charging. Jones sat on the heating unit and looked outside. I think I'm closing in on getting answers, possibly finding Charlie DePiro. I'm just worried. Cops are all over this. As soon as I have answers, I'll head home. Billy got into his pickup truck outside. Looks as if Billy's out there. He's leaving in his truck as we speak. That man is obnoxious. Jones looked over the television screen's headline. Local woman unconscious after freak accident. Gray Prius was crushed as if it were in an automobile or recycle yard. Then in the lower corner was a photo of a thin woman in her 20s with straight blonde hair. Miller's girlfriend, Miggs. Franny, she crashed into a tree right up the state highway. Oh, no. They just said it's being investigated. I have to check with Bisbee. George is right. It's time to get the H-E double hockey sticks out of there. Not yet, Fran. Whoever killed Miller doesn't want the truth to get out. You should be armed, Matthias. I'm working on it. 
The sun broke through, but just as easily ducked behind the approaching clouds. Jones arrived at the stone block police station on a street with diagonal parking spaces. The inside of the building resembled something out of the last century. He had just stepped up to a raised counter staffed with several offices. A woman with sharp blonde hair looked up from paperwork. Sir? Is Chief Bisbee in? He is, said an odd voice to his left. I've been waiting for you, Jones. Bisbee was short in stature and had trim brown hair, possibly dyed, graying at the sideburns. His wrinkled brown uniform and beefy cologne compromised his credibility. Bisbee's sing-song voice further eroded his image. Chief Strickland has briefed me on your background. I'm impressed. I'm just trying to find the truth, and this situation seems to be escalating. Jones followed him down the black and white tiled corridor. Could be, said Bisbee, looking over his shoulder. Bisbee liked maintaining the status quo. The chief opened an oak and frost glass door and motioned Jones inside. The door echoed as it firmly closed. Chief, I received a letter last week. He handed the letter to Bisbee, who read it slowly. Dear Mr. Jones, you best travel to Avondale, Connecticut to speak to Miss Marjorie Reed, a friend of the late John Miller, signed Anonymous. Reed did not send the letter, or so she says, said Jones. We'll check the writing, but it could have been Annie Miggs, said Bisbee. And now she's in a coma. I didn't know that. Have a seat, Jones. Bisbee took a position behind a worn wooden desk and folded his hands. He wore a thick gold wedding ring and had a cheap camping watch. Bisbee focused his buggy green eyes on Jones. First things first. Your partner is an obnoxious rambling fool. Wait a minute, Chief. Billy is not my partner. He's a sports writer from Florida who stuck his nose into this mess. Understood. Bisbee leaned back in his chair. You talked to Reed. Did she have any idea why Miller wanted to use her car to travel to New Hampshire? Reed was best friends with Miggs, Miller's girlfriend. Why? And that's how the whole thing came down. And Miller works at the construction company, said Jones. Bisbee pushed the air around his lips. He started as a laborer and occasionally worked some of the heavy machinery. Everybody liked him. So, Chief, what did he know that was so important that he had to drive up to Hamilton, New Hampshire in the vicinity of my game? I just don't know. Sometimes these cases kind of peter out. Coffee, Jones? No, thanks. Bisbee stood and quickly poured the steaming dark coffee into a large orange mug. He took a sip and faced Jones. Other than the letter, do you have any connection to Avondale, coach? None, said Jones, shaking his head which means someone who knows me is connected to Avondale and something important. Maybe. Maybe. That's exactly what's going on here. Do you want to investigate this or not? Well, Jones, if you want to go snoop, then go ahead. 
Jones knew he was scowling at Bisbee. You must have your own men here, Chief. You're the one with the reputation. I spoke to Strickland for some time. How did this crash happen? Bisbee closed his eyes for several seconds, then he nodded. The rear quarter of her Prius was scraped with green paint. The front of the car was demolished. Bisbee's matter-of-fact demeanor began to wear on Jones. Another car? Yeah. Bisbee extended his palms on the desk. You must have some idea what the hell is going on here. Jones nearly brought up Charlie DePiro on the logbook scandal. Like I told your guy last night, we were followed by a black Escalade with New York plates, said Jones. Bisbee wrote down the information on a piece of paper. Did you talk to Miggs, Chief? Well, we were waiting until after Jonathan Miller's funeral. Chief, we can assume that Miggs knew the connection, whatever it was that caused people to be killed. You know this town. Is there any investigation or criminality that's taken place recently? No, sir, no. Okay, said the frustrated Jones. Bisbee exchanged cards with Jones. That is my home number. Anything you learn about what's going on, you call me. What about Miller and Miggs' families? What do they do? asked Jones. Barry Diggs is a barber here in town. Shirley is an accountant, and the Millers own a small grocery store on the Connector Road. The Millers are in New Hampshire, said Jones. Oh, yes. That's right. Bisbee grasped Jones's hands. If Billy Bobcat is still around, you just let me know. Where can I rent a car, Chief? Well, we have an unmarked car. I'll sign it out. It's in the lot across the street. Take it. Well, that's very nice of you, Chief. See what you can find out. Jones directed his next comment at Bisbee. My dad used to say that once he started investigating, he had to continue. It was an obligation. Then what was it? Just a matter of catching the bad guys. A search begins for Snooky McKenzie, led by P.J. Fletcher in a helicopter after the collapse of Arnie's improperly constructed gazebo, Snooky McKenzie has started swimming directly into the Atlantic Ocean and is never found, at least for now. Jones heads to Connecticut to find Coco and Charlie Diaper. He is followed by Billy Bobcat. Join me next time for episode four of the life and times of Charlie Diaper on Fitting on the Air. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.